Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Hello, disruptors. Let's go over the dossier of our guest today. Name, Dr. Harsha Raja Simha. Alias, there are two. There are three, Dr. Harsha, Harsha, or Dr. Happiness. Title, founder and CEO of Jiva Informatics Solutions. Age, unknown. Location, the birthplace of our nation, Hint, Virginia. Dedication, clinical trial advancements for rare diseases. Other, dedicated volunteer and passionate advocate. Length of time disrupting all his life. Good guy, from what we can tell. Why are we talking to him today? After suffering the loss of a child to a rare congenital disorder, Dr. Harsha applied his years of postdoctoral training in the US at the National Institutes of Health and the FDA, as well as his work in the life sciences industry to accelerating treatments for rare diseases by eliminating bottlenecks in the clinical trials processes. Welcome. It's good to see you, Harsha. Thanks for having me, Carla. Yes. All right, so let's get into this, right? This is all about disruption. And our listeners like to know very particular things. The very first thing I want to ask you, and this is probably one of the most valuable lessons, what is the most important ingredient to disruption? Uh, in my opinion, it is empathy uh, for customers, ability to imagine yourself in the shoes of the customer and feel their pain. What is it to live the life of a clinical research coordinator, a clinical research investigator, which is the which is what we are focused on at Jiva Informatics, is solving the problems associated with clinical trials. So I, I, I would say it's the deep empathy that um, the entrepreneur or the founder or the disruptor uh, needs to have. Right. Well, typically disruptors are entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. Um, okay, deep empathy, right? Deep em empathy for the target audiences. And you're mentioning multiple, so it's not just one. Absolutely. You know, it, it's a, a, every clinical trial is different. Disease areas are different. And so talking to one customer or feeling for one customer is not sufficient. You need to be able to, uh, if you are trying to address an industry problem, you, you got to reach out to enough customers that represent the industry as a whole. And that usually means several hundred or even a couple thousand. Yeah. Which is what we have done. To start. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Right. <clears throat> so, Paint the picture for me of the status quo in your particular industry, and what is the disruption that you have deep empathy for? Absolutely. You know, clinical trials uh, take uh, uh, about five to seven years of, you know, between phase one, two, and three. Uh, to get a vaccine or a drug to market. And in, with COVID-19, we all saw it happened in five to seven months, not years. Yeah, which is so, crazy, right? It is crazy. Like a time warp, yeah. And it's a good crazy in that, uh, what if we could do that for all diseases and all drugs? You know, there are 7,000 plus rare diseases and many more chronic and complex common conditions. Wait a many minute, 7,000 plus rare diseases? Mm-hmm. Wow. Collectively affecting over 350 million people. Okay, that was my next question. So over 350, is that global? It's global. Global, okay, got it. Just in the United States, it's 30 million estimated. And we, we do have an Orphan Drug Act to incentivize the development of orphan therapies for rare diseases. What kind of therapies? Orphan. Okay. Orphan. Uh, these rare diseases are also considered orphan or neglected diseases. Yeah, that's an interesting term, right? Orphan mm -hmm. diseases. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for, for me, um, rare diseases are personal, but 
you know, also complex and common and chronic conditions uh, are also very uh, personal uh, as well. But um, in, in terms of the industry problem, you know, when uh, about 10, 15 years ago, I had read that uh, the process of bringing one drug to market uh, can cost about 700 million. And when, when I looked at the same number about three years ago, uh, that was uh, at uh, two and a half billion. It had exceeded two and a half billion. You're so, kidding. Not at all. Uh, to bring a drug to market. Is that strictly the FDA clinical trials? It's the FDA regulated clinical trials, uh, one, two, and three, uh, including the preclinical. Before they can be tested on humans, they have to be uh, tested in a computer in silico, as well as in animal models, and demonstrate that it's safe to test it on in humans. And that entire process going from when a drug may be discovered in the lab to when it's uh, approved by the FDA can take 10 to 15 years and wow. cost over two and a half billion dollars. You know, that, that's almost inhumane. It is. Um, I'm being nice about it because, you know, some people probably won't live through this, right? And then um, it, it seems virtually impossible for companies to raise that kind of money. Absolutely. And it's not that each company will have to spend two and a half billion dollars. Okay. It's nine out of 10 uh, drug candidates fail to receive a, a drug approval. So essentially, only one out of 10 get approval eventually. Wait, 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 wait. That, that is a very significant to me. So it's not really the money that has to be raised, that's the barrier to entry. It's what now? It's the success rate, right? So it's 88% of the drugs that enter human clinical trials never get approved by the FDA. <laughs> so 88% fail. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like your 80-20 rule in reverse, right? Mm-hmm. So 88% fail. So what you're saying is with that 88% rate that fail, the costs for doing this are so prohibitive or exorbitant that there's really the, stat the status quo doesn't allow for them to fail fast in order to fix things fast, in essence. Yes, exactly. And okay. Many times uh, failing fast uh, is desired, and but it's not practical for multiple reasons, including some bureaucracy and uh, other reasons within large biopharmaceutical organizations. But also many times you don't know until you get to the final stages. And these late stage failures of these drugs uh, in phase three clinical trials can be very expensive because you have already lost about four or five years of time and you have already spent hundreds of millions of dollars in, in these clinical trials. And so you're back to square one if it fails in a, in a late stage. That's astronomical. And so how many of these do we know? Do we have statistics of how many actually just give up? Yeah, it's uh, like I said, you know, uh, at every stage, it's roughly one third of the trials, right? Uh, uh, so if a candidate enters phase one, um, about 30 to 40% fail at that stage. And then in phase two, another 30% or so. And in phase three, another 30% or so. So, and so uh, we're talking about the people that are actually going through the trials. And I imagine that it's not easy to get people to go through these trials. Mm -hmm. okay. that's, the, that's the biggest problem in clinical trials is what okay. we heard is um, identifying the right patients and uh, enrolling them into the trial. So not only is it astronomical in terms of cost, but it's finding the right patients, which is part of the cost, right? Yeah, and then enrolling them and taking them through the trials. That's part of the cost too. That is the bulk of the cost. Absolutely. Right? And the time as well. You know, typically it, it can take anywhere from nine months to 18 months to enroll the target number of patients in a phase three clinical trial just for enrolling patients. And 85% uh, of these trials are delayed uh, to uh, at least some level uh, in the patient enrollment phase alone. And then those who do uh, get past that, you know, uh, about 30% of the trials actually fail to get past the patient enrollment phase itself. Wow. Because they can never meet the target enrollment. Wow. And All right, it, so it, I've got it, the status quo and that's been going on for a while and it actually seems to have gotten worse because now we've gone from 700 million to 2.5 billion, right? Yep. 
So what is the disruption? What is the transformation? Yeah, the transformation is uh, uh, essentially uh, the reasons for uh, having, we, we understood the reasons for um, the late stage failures, the patient yeah. enrollment problem. And once they do enroll enough patients, uh, about 30% of them drop out during the course of a clinical trial. And uh, if they do end up successfully completing the trial, then it's uh, then up to the regulatory agencies to review the evidence for whether the drug is safe and effective, and then make That's a decision. That's after phase three. Exactly. Okay. Until, yeah. That's the milestone. And that's the big milestone. At that point, there is nothing that we can go back and fix. Uh, it's done. Uh, and okay. it's either a A or an A. And, and a, you know, many times it's, it's an A. And so it's, uh, that's, that's where the disruption is needed. And we wanted to understand where in this complex process, you know, it's a very complex human endeavor, right, to uh, yeah. go from uh, a laboratory discovered drug candidate to actually approved uh, marketing uh, and so where do we fix where do we start right so the whole process uh, is not industrialized uh, some of the Nobel Prize winning discoveries in chemistry end up as a successful drug but then how do you industrialize drug development for thousands of them they, they, right. they are not all Nobel Prize winning discoveries but they can help improve the quality of life of patients and so to industrialize this where do we start right so that's uh, where we focused on hearing a couple thousand stakeholders in the last couple uh, years of our existence and what we heard and before is before you go on who would be stakeholders so people would know it's the biotechnology and pharmaceutical clinical trial operations teams um, the cro's or the contract research organizations that help the pharma companies execute the clinical trial protocol okay. the pa patients who participate in these clinical trials and their families caregivers, uh, as well as the investigators or the clinical researchers who okay. actually are at the sites, uh, the trial sites, which are usually academic medical centers or uh, hospital systems that, that are uh, hired by the biopharmaceutical companies to recruit patients and um, execute the trial. I got it. So you've got four big stakeholders and, and then regulators you know can't ignore the oh, yeah. fda and ema <laughs> right okay good so we have five big stakeholders okay so so what were you saying about the stakeholders is uh, we listened to over 2000 stakeholders on their experience of conducting a clinical trial or participating in a clinical trial and where are the biggest challenges yeah. why does it take so long why does it cost so much money how can we, where can we fix the problems? And we heard patient enrollment as the number one major problem, identifying the right patients who match the inclusion exclusion criteria for a given clinical trial. And once they are identified, how do we then inform and educate the patients about the risk and benefit of participating in a trial so they can make an effective decision on whether to enroll or not. And so that was the to... biggest challenge is finding mm -hmm. the patients and then making sure that they understood enough of the benefits or the risks, right? Yep. So they would participate. Yes. And okay. th th that was the biggest uh, issue. And on the when you look at it from various stakeholder perspectives, the researchers spend you know, typically 10, 15 minutes in a consultation with a patient. And if they are supposed to recruit, say, a few hundred or a few thousand patients, as the case is in phase three vaccine trials, for example, then they have to spend about 15 minutes per patient explaining the exact same protocol, exact same risk and benefit to hundreds or thousands of patients, and only about 3% of them will actually enroll in the trial. I, you know what? I knew you were going to say that. I was going to say about 2.5%. 2.5% to 3% will actually enroll. Okay, so we're talking about, again, time prohibitive. Exactly. Right? And very inefficient uh, use very of uh, a physician's time. You know, physician's time is so precious. Uh, they are better off spending the time in providing care and research rather than spending time explaining and pro doing repetitive tasks, which can be done by a robot. Uh, while human touch is very critical in this, human empathy and touch is very, very critical, there is also a lot of routine 
um, tasks that can be done by a robot. <laughs> and, and so that's where we draw the distinction on how do we bring technology to disrupt this without removing that human empathy and the human aspect of clinical trials. Okay, because empathy is the number one point for disruption. I mm. love this. Okay, good. So <clears throat> how did you do this? I mean, you obviously started off, uh, this is a SaaS product, right? Mm. Product and service, right? Software as a service. But, um, and you obviously um, did survey instruments on 2000. Uh, so a majority of, you know, you got majority response of these five stakeholders, right? Yeah. Which number one told you it was, you know, getting patients on board and getting them to understand, right? You know, how did you create all of this technology? That's a really broad question. So let me just answer it how you can. How did you create this and also leave the, the space or the time for the empathy that's needed to communicate to these patients? So it's a very interesting uh, process and a journey, Carla Jo. Uh, as I yeah. embarked on this journey as an entrepreneur, you know, I had zero experience of being a founder and an entrepreneur, although I had startup experience, right? And I had, I, I was an uh, um, accomplished scientist uh, with publications and a software engineer uh, by profession. And so, and it, data You're scientist. AKA overachiever, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but not, uh, a proven entrepreneur per se. Right. Uh, uh, and all I knew was being an entrepreneur and disruptor is like jumping off the cliff and building a parachute on your way down, right? And I had little clue. You hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, the experienced entrepreneurs told me, be sure to talk to your wife before you embark on this journey. And I had no idea why they were saying that. Like, <laughs> it's my personal decision. So, but uh, now, Wait, now I did do. Did you talk to her? <laughs> did you talk to her first or did you just jump off the cliff? I, I did talk to her, but I didn't know what to talk. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I have been very, uh, uh, you know, least available for her in household or supporting with childcare and all these other activities over the last few years since I embarked on this journey. And now I have a much better sense. But, you know, in terms of how do we do this, right, is yeah. there is no shortcuts. Uh, and those who do, uh, do take shortcuts, they don't end up solving the problem. And so right. if you really care about solving the problem, you, you need to uh, take the time to listen and understand where exactly the current status quo is, where the current state of the art technology solutions are failing. Because you, it's not like we are the first ever platform to ever exist to address this problem. Obviously, right. it's a huge problem and many large players have been trying and failing over the years, including the big players that we know, like Microsoft and Google and the Amazons, right? Uh, the big tech players have not been able to break into the life science industry and the big pharma uh, still holds the uh, ball uh, in, in, in their hands because this is deeply regulated space and deep understanding of the uh, physician-patient relationship the and all the complex workflow that goes with it in the context of a clinical trial is very critical. And so we took the time to spend enough, um, uh, talk to enough people, uh, ask them open-ended questions and understand uh, what they were actually telling us, right? So when right. when when a physician tells us, uh, uh, you know, I spend way too much time in explaining the same informed consent over and over again, people can interpret that in ten different ways. Depending, so you have on to pull the string and really find out what the common denominator is that for the majority of those physicians, right? Yeah, exactly. So it takes time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so that's where uh, it, it's it's been a very exciting journey in um, listening, interpretation of what the customers are telling us, sensing where the other competitors are going, where the industry is going, what the key opinion leaders are saying, what the regulatory agencies are saying, because in the last one year, what we heard and listened before the pandemic was completely thrown out of the window uh, when it came after the pandemic, right? So wow, it's, uh, okay. people who said, oh my God, we are not going to be able to use technology to do remote clinical trials because you know we need to see the patient without seeing the patient. We cannot uh, make any prescription. We cannot make assessments. 
this is really something that has to be done in person, face to face. And come pandemic, the same physician's mindsets changed, and uh, for good reason. It, it uh, necessity is the mother of invention, and right. in some sense, uh, that's the silver lining of the pandemic, uh, where the clinical trials go is now where we we don't necessarily have to even push the idea uh, anymore. It's the they are pulling, uh, they are actively seeking out good solutions to address this problem. That's awesome. I mean, that's really awesome. We need a silver lining in this pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, you know, from what I see from disruptors, they find the silver lining. Um, so there's the biggest failures that you've identified in the technology and so forth, right? That your competitors and even big, big tech have not been able to solve regarding using technology to push people through clinical trials. What are the ones that you can tell us about? Uh, what, what exactly was the question? Failures that you that Jiva actually solves. Uh, so the biggest failure that Jiva solves is basically the delays associated with patient recruitment. Right. So um, if it takes nine to eighteen months on an average, can what is the opportunity to reduce it by? Right. And if uh, only two and a half to three percent of patients are uh, who are eligible are enrolling in the study there is a huge opportunity to improve that, right? So yeah. uh, we, at least by three times is where we see we can uh, make an impact is instead of 3%, if we can have 9% of the you know, patients saying, yes, we want to enroll, that's a three times improvement in the speed of uh, enrollment. So that's how, that's where uh, one of the areas, the second is um, in terms of retaining patients, you know, uh, why do patients uh, refuse to enroll in the first place? Because of the logistical burden, right? So one, one, one out of three or one out of four people look at, okay, I have to travel to Boston once a month for uh, 12 times a year. Uh, and this is an 18 month trial. I have to arrange for daycare for my child. I have to take time off my work and I may have to take a caregiver along with me just in case. So, and, and find a, a hotel to stay there. I have to go at least a day in advance. So I am relaxed when I go into the site. So my vitals and numbers are not skewed because I just landed from a plane. Um, and, and so right. th all those things wear them down. So these are the problems, the logistical problems, because as scientists and clinical researchers, we think about the science. We don't think so much about the human aspects. And you know, <laughs> we, we have, right. at end of the day, we are conducting experiments on real humans who are taking, swallowing a pill or taking a therapy and measuring their outcomes. You know, and we uh, we are all in it to improve the patient outcomes. But if we ignore these logistical aspects of how, you know, when I measure the blood pressure for someone who just landed a plane and came straight to the site <laughs> versus someone who is more relaxed in their uh, comfort of their home, right? the vitals can be more reflective of the real world. Right. And so FDA has recognized it. All the major biopharmaceutical sponsors are recognizing this. And so they know that there is a white coat syndrome and patients may uh, you know, give skewed numbers when they see a white coat, uh, they get nervous. Interesting, <laughs> a white coat syndrome. I've never heard of that. I'm sure it's yeah. been around for, a, you know, that term has been around for a while. Yeah, but, yeah it's true, but right? you know, while in, in some cases it's necessary uh, and unavoidable, uh, in other cases uh, it, it may skew the data and results when, when it is really not necessary. And the other part is the other syndrome we hear about from customers is the parking lot syndrome, right? Where parking lot syndrome. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, where patients are expected to maintain a diary uh, of all the medications that they are taking on a day to day basis. And uh, they are supposed to do that every day, but if their visit is once a month, they drive to the parking lot with the diary, sit, sit there in their car and complete the diary for the entire 30 days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can see that. I can totally see that. And then they walk into the clinic with, the, with their completed diary and you know it's their best guess as to when exactly they missed their medication. Uh, which dose they missed, how many, how many of them in the last 30 days, right? So it, it, that's, yeah, that's critical. I mean, that's critical to your trials, mm -hmm. very, right? Very, very critical. And our researchers are like, 
we don't know if our drug is really given a chance, uh, a, a good chance and a fair chance um, by the patients because we don't know if they really took it or not. So adherence to medication protocol, if they are supposed to take thrice daily or once daily for n number of days, um, have they actually done that? And uh, where is the record for that? And of course, that's uh, it's all trust and we all trust each other, but at the end of the day, FDA looks for evidence and that evidence has to be backed by data, which can be audited and verified. Trust, but verify. That's that's the mantra. Yes. So these are the three failures that Jiva actually solves with yeah. technology. Enrollment, retention, uh, adherence to medication. Wow. That's exciting. That's super exciting. And this yeah. is what big tech has not been able to figure out. Right? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, uh, as we do this, one of the things we heard is um, not one person said, they had a good experience of conducting a clinical trial or not one person, not one person, a hundred percent had a bad experience mm -hmm. or frustrating experience, right? Like uh, that all of the stakeholders, or all of the stakeholders, all, not, not just the patients and their not families. Just patients. Okay. Everyone. Uh, they said Horrible. every, every clinical trial feels like the first ever trial undertaken by man uh, is, is a general uh, feeling that we captured um, or the mood right, uh, and particularly from the clinical researcher side, because if the it's like building a brand new airport for a plane to take off, and then once that plane is gone, now you bring down that airport. For the next trial, it's, it's a new protocol, it's very different, so you have to build another airport just for that one trial, and, and so on. So it's, that's the analogy we heard from right. major pharmaceutical companies who have been doing clinical trials for 70 years. And so- uh, and 70, to, 70, seven, 70 yeah. yeah, since the 1950s or 60s, the randomized controlled clinical trials. <laughs> it's like, yeah. wow, like we really haven't learned. But you know, it sounds like what you've done is identify not only the common denominators and the real pain points, but almost like what are the natural laws, even on the order of the physical sciences of how you, how you actually carry out a clinical trial? You know, what are the key pillars? What are the key points, the key milestones and where technology can fit in to facilitate? Absolutely. And you know, when we hear the customers, they are not someone that likes to be disrupted. You know, it's a very risk averse. None industry. of the stakeholders. Most of the stakeholders, I would say. I would imagine the farm pharmaceutical, the biotech company, they absolutely do not want that. Even the regulators, right? Everything's yeah. so regulated yeah. and compliance issues, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, when we had, uh, when we speak to sponsors, they point fingers at the regulators saying, oh yeah, Harsha, we understand, you know, we have been trying, but you know, what if we go through the clinical trial in a patient-centric way, uh, reducing the burden and collect data remotely. And after five years, now the FDA says, oh, um, we cannot accept this data because the, you know, this is not standard protocol. How do you know it was the patient that uh, provided this data? Why not uh, maybe it came from the dog or the child in the house or someone else responded on behalf of the patient. What if the regulators don't accept this data, then all the five years of effort and the cost and everything is risked. So it's a huge risk for us. And when we talk to regulators, they're like, no, Harsha, we have saw, addressed all the concerns and we have provided proper guidelines and recommendations on use of mobile technologies in clinical trials wearable devices, electronic health records, electronic data capture. We have the guidelines for everything. So uh, it, it's really now up to the sponsors to step up and execute. So there is this finger pointing going on back and forth. Truth is somewhere in the middle, right? And right. so uh, somebody has to uh, make the effort to find out what the truth is and bring all stakeholders uh, to, to that space. Part of the problem is we get boxed as vendors um, uh, and you know as technology innovators, uh, solution providers. We don't have a seat at the creativity table uh, to brainstorm and solve problems. We are seen as vendors trying to sell mm. or pu push our solutions, <clears throat> which is very unfortunate because we are the ones who are uniquely positioned to understand 
multiple stakeholder point of view and we can offer solutions that can uh, you know satisfy the requirements from the regulator side as well as the sponsor side interesting and this is something the chief information officer of fda uh, pointed out in a recent uh, webinar uh, herself uh, dr amy abernathy uh, what did she point out that vendors uh, you know we should not treat technology innovators as vendors and not allow them an opportunity to share their creative innovation uh, at, at the table and they do bring a lot of innovation especially the smaller companies because the larger organizations take much of the media attention when some data privacy data security issues happen right. etc but it's the startups innovation occurs in the startup space and uh, the right innovators need to be uh, offered a seat at the table. And that's coming from the CIO of FDA was very encouraging. Well, yeah, she's pretty smart, right? Mm -hmm. So let's consider you a stakeholder too, right? Technology mm -hmm. companies should be considered stakeholders. Yep. Okay, so this begs the question, right? Like you have deep empathy, you decided to take responsibility and do this. It's obviously not an easy task. No disruption is, right? When did you say that's it? Like I've got that's freaking it. I've got to do something about it. This has got to stop. Yeah, um, it, it's it's uh, both the personal and professional, uh, Carla. Uh, in terms of uh, you know, it, you pointed out in my introduction uh, about my experience of a child born with a rare disease here in the yes, United tell States. Yes, about that. Um, and you know that that's a early diagnosis uh, issue, right? So. Uh, a, a, congenital uh, medical condition, which could be diagnosed during the first trimester of pregnancy, goes undetected until full-term birth. And at birth, uh, the baby gets diagnosed. And we, we are told on the face that the baby is not compatible with life or the baby is uh, not a viable baby. And that's that, harsh. Yeah, it, it is uh, in terms of the communication, the empathy, and how you communicate certain things to people, right? Uh, as well as the fact that the diagnosis went um, missing until the uh, birth, when the neonatologist told that, oh, the uh, this kind of condition should never occur. You know, these are detected in the first trimester. Uh, how did really? we let this slip through and wait until this long? And so there is this. Um, uh, healthcare delivery problem and early diagnosis problem. And it, unfortunately, in our case, the technology to diagnose existed in the first trimester, but it was just not offered to us. And the reason that we were given was we are low risk couple. Uh, we were, uh, you know, I was in my early 30s and my wife was in her 20s. So we, we are very low risk uh, of having genetic um, conditions or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so we, we were not offered the prenatal uh, early diagnostic test. And because that, of your age, you were young and, and robust we, and they we, got and, it. Yeah. And we also had a, a first child that uh, did not have any such known conditions. Got it. Um, the other, uh, you know, that this was in 2012. And that's when I quit my uh, job um, as a consultant to the FDA uh, and started on my own, started Jiva, uh, focusing on early diagnosis uh, and how can we accelerate diagnostics uh, through uh, for testing thousands of single gene disorders can be diagnosed with a single test. Uh, back then, it was still early days of uh, taking that into the clinic. And so we uh, accelerated that. Uh, I led the launch of a genetic testing uh, for rare diseases and cancer including integrative molecular testing and automating the data interpretation. Um, and that was between 2013 and 2015 or uh, 16. And then uh, for the last four or five years, I have been focused then on the drug development process. And when I read about the two and a half billion cost and 10 to 15 years, I'm like, this is uh, just a, a problem worthy of attempting to solve. Um, and in 2017, uh, or, it's a big uh, so, problem to solve. It takes a big person to do that, right? Yeah. I, I, I don't know about the big person part, but you know, certainly some who big being, care, whatever cares. you want to call it, you know, deeply someone who cares, right? So yes, it takes a, a yes, lot of care. Of, yeah. yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I lost my younger brother around the same time to a chronic condition. Uh, he was in his 30s and, uh, you know, he had a, a juvenile diabetes and he was trying to manage it himself. Uh, he was living in India uh, and he did not have any exposure or awareness about clinical trials. Mm. There, uh, diabetes obviously is a highly competitive market and there's so much of uh, innovation happening in the diabetes space. One thing people don't know or understand is that clinical trials are not as risky or risky at all because they have gone through stringent scrutiny by the regulators and only protocols that are safe and better than the standard of care are allowed. Really? Yeah. Yeah, people don't know that. People don't trial, know that. They, the word trial implies that it's never been done before. So they don't realize that. I didn't realize that. Exactly. And people think they are being used as guinea pigs by rich pharmaceutical companies uh, as experimental guinea pigs. And That's a big stigma. It is. And, and that, uh, you know, being in India, my brother was not as motivated to um, take action. And even though I was aware of many of these things, I still had trouble getting him to take care of himself. You know, he was expecting that his family would take care of him or someone else would care for him. Whereas as an adult, you know, you, you got to take your own, uh, as, you know, health into your um, uh, hands oh, and yeah, right? manage it. Yeah. And, and so I, I saw that there is a huge need to uh, educate patients and make it easy for healthcare researchers, uh, clinical researchers to educate patients and inform them about all clinical trials in general, but each specific individual clinical trial about why they should consider it and how it, you know, really position it in terms of the risk benefit, but also it's at no cost to the patients, right? And so patients don't have to pay for the treatment. They get it for uh, at no cost to them. So all of this- That's these, incredible. Yeah. So this is very personal for you, mm -hmm. but you also have the um, education and experience to make it also objective for you. Luckily, yes. Yeah. You're, you're kind of a hybrid, Parsha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So who are the early adopters of this technology? Yeah. So, you know, the barrier to entry in the healthcare life science sector is extremely high, uh, especially if you have to directly sell to a biotechnology, pharmaceutical, medical device companies. They, ha they have the responsibility ultimately to ensure they are using the right software solutions that meet all the regulatory guidelines. Hmm. And, and so um, we have started in the last six months since the launch, um, worked with various academic medical centers, university researchers, children's hospitals to validate the platform, get through all the regulatory guidelines uh, and expectations and requirements. Uh, you know, before they can even consider the core value of the software, it has to meet a lot of uh, regulatory criteria like SOC 2 compliance or HIPAA compliance and 21 CFR Part 11, the GDPR. Uh, I can go on and, the and ABC, on. XYZ. <laughs> so the list is wow. so, so long and cumbersome. Just for compliance, you may have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the platform to where uh, it is acceptable for researchers to now. You know, I had researchers look at the software last year and said, they gave a standing ovation. Harsha, thanks for doing this. You know, I, I am so glad someone took the time to think about all these logistical issues right. because we, we don't have the time. We are focused so much on individual patients. We spend so much time talking to one patient at a time. Uh, it, it's you have done a fantastic job. We love the software and we want it. Uh, and we, we had customers tell this last year. Now it took us six months. Uh, you know, obviously, several customers have already started using it, and we have uh, you know about eight beta customers, uh, enterprise, and one of the study completed, and we are publishing that with Kenesha State University uh, and George Mason University is uh, currently uh, completed their evaluation and now progressing into a paid subscription uh, for uh, a study that they are enrolling uh, two and a half thousand um, college students uh, in their health study. Wow. And, and uh, you know, clinical research is not just limited to sick patients, but also for healthy adults uh, for understanding health and disease. Uh, and, you know, you health... have to have a comparison in order to judge yeah. something, right? Yeah, exactly. 
And so that, that those are some, and Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and several other uh, enterprise customers, you know, patient advocacy groups are looking at you know, using the software for maintaining and uh, creating and maintaining their patient registry with hundreds of patients located, distributed globally, as is the case with rare diseases, and collecting their health information and um, making it available for research so that they can accelerate treatments for their uh, rare disease communities. So those are all the types of customers that are already using the software. And so you have quite a lot of early adopters mm -hmm. because it's it's been such a need for so long. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. So who gets cut out? You know, it, it, most times in disruptive innovation, there is some, you know, economic network or value network or group that gets cut out because mm -hmm. it's no longer conducive to helping the status quo. Is that yeah. the case with Jiva? Uh, absolutely. I, I think it's the case with almost every uh, solution uh, has its own limitations. And you know, in terms of Jiva, we uh, are helping improve the diversity of patients who get to participate in clinical trials in terms of race, uh, because 80, 90% of patients who have historically participated have been Caucasian middle-aged men. Uh, but uh, you know, obviously uh, race and ethnicity is a big part of diversity. But yeah. also gender, you know, mostly men have been uh, participants in clinical trials and that too from affluent backgrounds. So various socioeconomic uh, um, groups, the underrepresented minorities, gender like females, uh, women and uh, LGBTQ plus community uh, and pediatric, uh, a, you know, pediatric research receives extremely low attention and hmm. also low investment. It's wow. more complex, it's more regulated and the standards are much higher for pediatric because we are dealing with children than it is for adults. And for various reasons, the pediatric research suffers, as well as uh, several other, uh, you know, geographic diversity is very important because people living in rural areas don't get to participate in clinical trials. People living in hard to reach mountainous or geographic regions do not get to participate. Historically, most patients participating in clinical trials live within 50 mile radius of the major medical centers like Boston, uh, Bethesda, you know, or uh, MD Andersons of the world. And so uh, to really make it uh, equitable and inclusive, we, we have to spread out. Now with the Jiva solution to answer your question, uh, yeah. it, it can include all people with access to internet and access to technology, you know, uh, while having a device is not necessarily a requirement that's often the sponsors of the clinical trials are able and willing to provide a device but they still uh, need to have an internet access to to connect and engage remotely right and that's that's still a limiting factor believe it or not uh, many areas uh, don't have the internet i mean more than half of the world's population has internet access so that's a uh, that's still a big uh, jump from being restricted to 50 mile right. radius of clinical trial sites, right. it's, it's orders of magnitude uh, expansion, but at the same time, it's not all inclusive. You know, uh, people who are, have at least some basic literacy, basic education can only participate. Certain tribal and indigenous populations may not even be able to access internet technology or language right. to even engage and participate. So, so it does still leave out uh, about 40% of the world's population. Yeah, baby steps, Harsha, baby yeah. steps. <laughs> so out of the stakeholders, it doesn't look like anyone gets cut out as, as far as that value network. It looks like it's bridging the gaps between those. Absolutely. Our interesting. That, yeah, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, the technology platform can be used by the hospital sites, the CROs, or the sponsors directly licensed uh, in a siteless, uh, fully decentralized trial, a hybrid trial where some parts of the study is done in person and some parts can be done virtually. Um, and a variety of uh, clinical trial conditions, it's disease agnostic, so it can work for a variety of different disease areas uh, for phases zero, one, two, three, four clinical trials 
observational studies only with or without intervention. So it, it, it's meant to be a highly flexible and as inclusive and broad as possible. So we are not addressing very disease specific aspects within the software itself, but provides the flexibility for uh, various- You can uh, plug and play your, uh, your disease into this particular model. That's really yeah. innovative. Yeah. So you mentioned this whole diversity and inclusion thing, right? But yeah. it has a different take on it from what I see, um, because I guess my question to you is, how can you really determine the correct therapies, drugs, and so forth for certain diseases if you don't test certain other ethnicities? Because, I mean, just gender-wise, I mean, women work very different than men, right, in terms of hormones and glandular uh, responses and endocrine system, right? I, I would imagine certain ethnicities, even with children, it's very different, right? Am I right here? You are 100% right. And, you know, we often see on drug labels, right, whether it's prescription drug or over the counter, you see warnings about pregnant women and children and um, that age, if it is uh, meant for children below 12 years of age or not, and the dosing may be different for them, and there will be some warning messages, but that's about it, right? In most drugs are not approved based on the uh, population on which the drug was tested during clinical yeah. trials. So for example, most of the cardiovascular drugs, statins and uh, other cholesterol uh, reducing drugs have historically performed really well on uh, adult men, but not so much on women because mm. most of the trial participants have been men. So uh, it, it, women have suffered disadvantage in the same drug that works really well on men have not worked for them. Uh, I mean, it's not for all drugs, but uh, in that's a general uh, finding in the cardiovascular space. And uh, so there is, uh, when FDA approves it, it's approved for the general population. It does not take into account that only white men were uh, used in uh, uh, testing the drug. It does not take into account that women were less used or not used at all as participants in clinical trial. And uh, many other uh, ethnic backgrounds, you know, uh, there are four major genetic backgrounds in the world. Caucasian is just one of them. And right. if uh, you know, while 10% of the world's population lives in the United States and Europe, 90% of the rest of the world uh, are not as included. You know, maybe they all combined represent 20% or less of the uh, population tested. But once it's approved, it, it's meant for everybody. And, and so, uh, you know, for example, for orphan therapies, like I said, for rare diseases, if it is approved by FDA, uh, many countries do not require any additional clinical trial to be conducted on their populations. Uh, and uh, India is one of them. Uh, and I advocate for uh, orphan drugs uh, uh, acceleration uh, by bringing collaborations uh, between United States and India through my nonprofit. And there we know that India does not uh, require any new trials, which means any therapy that's tested on Caucasian is automatically available for Indian genetic backgrounds, which are very different. Which are very different. Okay, yeah. that's amazing, right? Yeah. I, wanted to, I wanna talk about what you're doing in, in your nonprofit there, um, but I wanted to ask you, uh, well, before we do that, what, what else did you wanna say about that? Because my mind is racing here now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, that's mainly the uh, where I was going with all that is to say that um, having the uh, regulatory agencies can have a role in, in this whole process uh, and making sure that drugs are tested on the target populations for which it is meant for. And it doesn't right. always have to be equally distributed. Sickle cell disease can affect more black people than white people or brown people. And so it, it, depending on the particular disease uh, prevalence and incidence, uh, the target clinical trial population has to reflect the target uh, you know, people that the drug will be used by uh, once it's right. approved. So I think regulatory agencies have not enforced uh, any such requirements in the past to my knowledge. Uh, and th I think that would be something for the regulators to uh, help out. Yeah, that would be something to help out. And with this technology, I mean, it, it, it would lower the cost dramatically to get inclusion from these different populations or these, you know, different genetic bodies, right? 
that yeah. would be able to go through these trials. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's the era of precision medicine, you know, tailoring the right drug for the right patient at the right time at the right place. And so we, we, it's uh, highly personalized. And, you know, uh, we, there have been clinical trials where there was a single patient in the entire clinical trial uh, that FDA approved in the last couple of years, uh, Mila and uh, um, Jesse, uh, two cases where a single patient clinical study was approved by FDA. And these are antisense oligonucleotide therapy that was designed specific to that one, one patient. So that's one extreme, while there are vaccines and drugs that are meant for population consumption as well. So obviously it's a huge spectrum and a range there. And uh, you know, diversity inclusion and the technology use can vary significantly based on the type of the trial protocol. And that's why there is no one size fit all solution. Yeah, it, this just begs so many more questions that I have, right? <laughs> um, okay, so I, this is what I wanna know. Like I'm listening to all of this and all this knowledge you have, but I'm like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about little Harsha. Like how long have you been disrupting you know, I, I know the personal experience that, you know, really was the catalyst for, for this for you, but what were you like younger? What have you been doing? Yeah, um, I've, uh, you know, my background is in software engineering originally as an undergrad uh, and, you know, about uh, half of my life so far uh, was spent growing up in India and the other half uh, growing up here in Northern Virginia. And I continue to grow uh, in some ways. <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, my technology software engineering background transformed into the, was inspired by human genome project in 2000. And that's when I got into computational biology, bioinformatics uh, field at Virginia Tech during my grad school days. And that's been fascinating. You know, I, I really believe this is the century of biology and medicine. And uh, th those are the disciplines that have been the slowest to adopt technology uh, in some sense, uh, relatively speaking. Um, it seems you know. ironic because you would think that would be just the exact opposite. Yeah, I mean, you know, believe it or not, pornography is the first industry to adopt technology, right? And <laughs> it's most advanced. Oh no. And, and then the financial technology and you know many other industries. And by the time we get to healthcare and life science, they still lag behind uh, quite a bit. We, wow. we are still using fax machines to share health data. Uh, you know, uh, we, we, the healthcare life science industry- You're kidding, is still, right? Mm -hmm. We are. No, uh, it, that's uh, a requirement. You know, we, we cannot email, because most emails are unencrypted, um, health information is protected. And so you can't email unless it's an encrypted email. Um, and even there, uh, it has to be done in certain, people are not well-educated to exchange data in that format yet, but hopefully it's changing uh, soon. Uh, we, we see some uh, good uh, change winds coming, uh, particularly driven by the pandemic. But uh, so yeah, that's where my inspirations uh, into biology and medicine started in 2000. And um, since then I have been hanging out with uh, molecular biologists, uh, clinicians and researchers uh, in a variety of different settings, including with the coronavirus uh, SARS virus uh, genome sequencing project that I was involved in uh, in 2004 at the Virginia Bioinformatics Institute, wow. which had a grant from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And that project funded my PhD between 2004 and seven. Um, and uh, it's fascinating that, that um, I, I did not know that the seven bacteria and viruses uh, that we worked on with the then 454 sequencer that was only capable of sequencing small genomes, you know, of, of bacteria and viruses at the time. And come 2007. I don't know what that means. What does that mean in layman's term? Like, help me out. Yeah, like, you know, it's rare, but. Yeah, you know, the DNA that forms the genome, right? Every cell in the human body or any living cell has DNA in it, whether it's plant right. or animal. And when it comes to the smallest forms of living organisms, the unicellular or single cell organisms, right? Bacteria and viruses, uh, their DNA is very small in length, right? If you take that circular loop of DNA in bacteria and virus and stretch it out, it's a few thousand kilo basis or few hundred basis. 
the DNA is made of base pairs, you know, deoxyribonucleic acid. And so you, you call out, there are four bases, A, C, G, T. And so you, uh, sequencing is all about reading out that genetic code, you know, a, a random sequence of A, C, G, and T. Got it. And so, uh, you know, back then we could only sequence a few hundred uh, kilo bases at once. Um, and now we are able to sequence the entire human genome for less than a thousand dollars. And human genome Unreal. consists of 1.3 billion base bases, right? And <laughs> oh so it's <laughs> so that's an advance. So that's technology. That's an advancement there, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, a, it's a, nothing like this has ever occurred. It's a, a revolutionary technology uh, that uh, even the semiconductor industry, uh, which is familiar with the Moore's law, right, where the number of transistors in a, on a unit uh, area of a processor kept doubling year after year for, and it continues to happen since the 1970s until now, that hasn't changed. Every year we see new version of the Intel and AMD processors they have twice the number of transistors uh, year after year. But uh, this uh, genome sequencing technology even bet the Moore's law by a square. You know, it, it's the square of the Moore's law uh, in terms of how much uh, the cost has been reducing year after year. Wow. So you've really been deeply embedded into this scientific and engineering life for a long time. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, and I love it. I love every day, uh, Carla, I wake up in the morning uh, knowing that today is the best day of my, the rest of my life. And uh, I'm so excited to be in this space working with other disruptors, innovators, and people with empathy to solve human problems. You know, I, I can't be sitting on and crunching numbers all day long. That That's the life I enjoyed for a while. But I, I realized I enjoy more working with people and addressing people's problem. Well, and after so, all, this technology is to help people. So you you have to have that mindset. That's amazing. Yeah. So what are you passionate about? What do you do outside of Jiva? And do you have time to do anything? Uh, whatever little time I do have, uh, I uh, you know love to spend time with my daughters, uh, 14 and seven, so, and, and my wife. Uh, so we uh, make time to uh, take some weekend getaways once in a while, which has been hard in the last year and a half. Um, and, so you have a house full of girls. Mm -hmm. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, blessed with that. Uh, three, I, I call them three moms caring for me uh, with, my, <laughs> with my mom also joining them once in, once in a while. She lives, uh, she shuttles back and forth between my brother in India and here. And so uh, I have multiple moms caring for me. <laughs> yeah. And so you spend a lot of time with them. You know, I grew up in a family with, you know, uh, all women. You know, yeah. I sometimes felt sorry for my dad. <laughs> he didn't have a chance in hell yeah. <laughs> of winning um, anything. <laughs> absolutely. I, I, I don't even try. Uh, I, I, I believe in winning by losing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Smart man. Yeah, you have to lose Smart. something. To high IQ, Harsha. High <laughs> IQ. <laughs> yeah, what are the, what's the most fun like you can recall? Like, do you have a pleasure moment of being with your wife and kids? Like, I mean, I'm sure it's all the time, but what stands out? Oh, you know, my um, little girl, seven-year-old, she just randomly comes and starts instructing me as to what I should do. And she said, <laughs> put your hand here and uh, the other hand on your waist and then dance like this. <laughs> so and I'm like, what do you, you comply like that? <laughs> so I just follow the instructions. And then I like, what did you end up making me do just now? Like, I am not a good dancer. <laughs> <laughs> You're very compliant. That's yeah. awesome. That's very good. And then what, what do you, I know you, let's talk about your um, nonprofit or your foundation. You mentioned something about that. Tell me, I know that's a big passion of yours. Absolutely. Yeah. So since uh, um, the 2012 experience of uh, the child with a rare disease, you know, I started learning about all the progress we have done in the United States, the innovator in the world with the first country to have a orphan drug act, you know, that was signed uh, into law by uh, then president Ronald Reagan. And that's been uh, since 1983. And, uh, you know, the national organization for rare disorders in the United States, the global genes, um, the every life foundation for rare diseases, they've all been doing amazing 
service to the community of rare diseases, um, uh, uh, you know, which includes 7,000 plus diseases and 350 million people worldwide. Yeah. But these organizations were primarily focused on uh, US only. Right. Um, and so I recognize that back in India, there was very little or no organization advocating for all these rare diseases and carrying forward the momentum that's generated by the Orphan Drug Act. You know, uh, we had only three orphan drugs available in 1983. Today, we, we have more than 600 orphan drugs that um, help patients with rare diseases. Wow. And that still represents only uh, 5% of the uh, total number of rare diseases. So 95% of the rare disease do not have any treatment approved so far. Huh. So if uh, the NIH uh, has a dedicated center uh, for advancing translational sciences and the director, um, Dr. Christopher Austin said a uh, couple years ago that if we proceed with the same speed, it's going to take 2000 years to have at least one treatment for each rare disease. 2000 years. Wow. Uh, and so that's just not acceptable. And so what we, we need a different game changer uh, and a different way of thinking if we have to accelerate the uh, drug development process for particularly for rare diseases, which affect individual diseases affect a small, small population, but collectively they affect big, big numbers, you know, like yeah. diabetes. And so uh, one of the major gaps that have to be addressed, in my opinion, uh, and I have validated this with many key opinion leaders and stakeholders, is cross-border collaborations. You know, we cannot continue with the same US-centric and European-centric research. We have to engage the rest of the world. And India alone, the Indian subcontinent has a quarter of the world's population. Yes, huge. And they have been largely, you know, if you look at all the clinical trials happening there, less than 2%. Uh, and they are the quarter of the world's population. And how, how can you ignore and not have genetic data for such a population when you are making understanding science and genetics? You know, what is the frequency of a genetic mutation occurring in the world, right? If you have to really understand that, you need to know the genetics of the all the populations, not just one population segment. And so that's that's where I see a very clear gap. It's a huge problem and it's way above my pay grade if, uh, in, yeah. in, the, in some sense, yeah. because it requires policymakers, regulators, uh, you know, industry bodies, patients, uh, mainly driven, you know, pushed by patients because in rare diseases, one parent or uh, one uh, mother has changed the world for that particular child or patients with that particular rare disease. We have seen many such examples, you know, and, and we have inspiring leaders to follow there as well. So I believe that if we bring all these key stakeholders together and uh, bring them to the table and have the right conversations, uh, then I think uh, things will change and we are seeing a good headwind uh, there. Wow. Well, that's a tall order, but I know just the disruptor to be able to do that. <laughs> so, um, you know what, before we tell people where to find you, you mentioned something that made me think of this, and I forgot to ask you, where have you had trouble in getting adoption of your technology? Um, so far, you know, it, it's uh, uh, been a learning experience, right? So uh, I, I particularly don't see any trouble uh, in gaining adoption because, like I said, the functionality of the software, the approach uh, has been found very unique, innovative, and acceptable. Uh, but uh, achieving all the regulatory, um, legal, IT security, regulatory accessibility, and other requirements. Uh, that's where we spent the last six, seven months. And by next month, we are pretty much done addressing almost all the gaps that all these auditors pointed out. So I think we, we are expecting a significant growth in the coming years. Uh, and we only expect that as we demonstrate more and more proof points and evidence that the software has been used in real world settings and demonstrated uh, value, it's, it's only going to grow from there. And I'm feeling very confident, optimistic that the customers that we have been working with uh, are finding it um, valuable. And it's a partnership and collaboration. End of the day, we have to work closely with 
these biopharmaceutical sponsors, researchers, to make sure we deploy technology in a way that makes sense and fits within specific clinical trials, one at a time. Wow. So at this point, that's really good. You know, at this point, you're telling me that it's just a big education campaign at this point. Mm -hmm. Awareness, mm -hmm. exposure. Well, good. Yeah. yeah, because for most people, it is still relatively new. You know, because of the pandemic, they are have to right. uh, adapt to the remote uh, engagement settings. And uh, it, it's still a learning experience for everybody, including us. And, and so we need to approach it with a sense of uh, humility and um, with a keen uh, eye and ear um, to listen and learn. And we, we keep refining and maturing the technology. Yeah, got it. So where can people uh, find you? Again, I, I'm relatively easy to find on the internet, um, uh, but my uh, email address is uh, uh, ceo at uh, jivatrials.com. Okay. Uh, and I can be reached by phone at... Uh, 540-239-0465. That's my That's cell awesome. phone. You know you're going to get a deluge of calls now, though. <laughs> That's and good. I, yes. Okay, good. So you're at CEO at jivatrials.com. And your phone number again? 540-239-0465. Awesome. And they can find out more information at jivatrials.com. That's exactly right. Okay, good. Thank you, Harsha. This has Thank been you for awesome. having me. I've learned so much. I've enjoyed it. I have so many more questions, but we're going to end off for today. It was a pleasure being here, Carla Jo. I enjoyed our conversation as much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, guys, that's it. If you learned something today or laughed, tell someone about this podcast. Tell people to go disrupt their markets with some tidbit from the show. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.